You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast about the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 18, Abel Ferrara's King of New York with Chris Walken, multiple bullet wounds, Wesley Snipes, David Caruso saying every unwoke word that you can possibly imagine, and Schoolie D. Martin. Yes. It's for the bullet holes, puta! You are Negro. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and with me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? Doing great. How's it going? Pretty good. And we're here for another uh, auteur-centric episode, uh, which we haven't done in a couple weeks. We, we traveled a little bit. We went and saw a bunch of movies in a weird theater in Pennsylvania, and uh, you know we published another episode where you hated the Shawshank Redemption which was controversial to mm-hmm. say the least. Um, but we're back and we're talking about stuff that we love, namely Abel Ferrara and King of New York, which I consider his great uh, masterpiece. But like our Bud Boddicker episode, this is a bit of a tutorial for one of us, only this time I'm kind of handing out the homework to you uh, because you were before this more or less a Ferrara, let's say neophyte. Would yeah. that be accurate? I'd seen a few. I'd seen I'd seen King of New York even before I met you just years ago um, on a walk-in kick. And I had seen Ms. 45, and I think that's it. And I'd, I think I missed everything else besides that. Did you see Miss 45 as part of that uh, Draft House Films re-release when it came back out? Or was it like a VHS thing that you kind of just stumbled upon? It was actually on the Draft House Blu-ray, so okay. I, w- I think I was at honestly, I think I was at um, Vulcan, okay, and just picked it up, and I said, "All right, it's time to do that." So, I mean, it's one of the staples of the early '80s uh, kind of exploitation uh, output, let's say. Um, so, where did you start? I know what I assigned you, but where where did you basically pick up with it? How did you approach it? I, I went mostly chronologically. So I did Driller Killer first. I'd seen Miss Forty Five before, and so I skipped to Bad Lieutenant, um, and then I did um, The Addiction, and I also did. Um, then I did uh, King of New York one more time. Okay, as well. So let's start. Yeah, Miss 45, finally. Yeah. At the beginning, uh, Driller Killer. What did you think? I ended up really liking it. Um, I think one of the reasons I'd stayed away from Ferrara in the past is 
you and I are pretty different in our, our love maybe for like sleaze New York. Uh, I'm not against it, but it's not what I usually seek out. You know, it's not a thing of like, I'm a junkie. You, you, and you love that stuff. And I, I love, and I was, I mean, I watched that film. And I was like, I now know why Jacob loves this movie. Like I, I, I know enough about you now as a friend that I know. Why well, don't love driller killer. Well, I don't particularly like driller killer. Sorry, not to put words in your mouth, but why you love his movies? Oh, sure. It, yeah, there, there's still a lot in that. I could, you know, the different the similarities between that and the rest of his his filmography that, that I, I worked through. Um, it's definitely really loose um, and and feels very improvisational. But similar to what his other films did, they really kind of get you into his headspace. I mean, it's not just it's not toolbox murders. You know, to think about another film with you know, using power tools to kill people. This like has a philosophy to it. Um, I also like stories about artists going mad. Um, I hated the Candyman remake, but I know that she, the director, that was one of the films that she watched uh, in preparation was Driller Killer. Um, that checks out. I didn't actually know that. Yeah. And, and that's, I was interested to watch. I hated, again, I did not like that movie, but I was interested to watch Driller Killer. And I, I really ended up liking it um, a lot more than I expected to. You know, Ferrara is, uh, he's really gross in the movie because he, play, <laughs> he plays the lead role. And I didn't realize, because, you know, I watch a lot of horror films. I watch a lot of pretty fucked up stuff. But I usually feel like I'm in the hands of a sane person who's, like, trying to offend me. Like, there's films like, like t- you know, Texas Chainsaw feels unhinged. This film also right. feels quite unhinged where I'm like, I'm, I'm, I find him to be a scary person. Like I feel like you're really putting yourself on the screen here and like, you know, also very autobiographical about being an artist um, and, and, ju- and being judged by people you think are beneath you. Um, well, and also yeah. there's a ton of like moments where it almost feels like a found movie yeah. to where like he's just taking his, you know, 16 millimeter camera out onto the streets and, and filming you know, uh, uh, these kind of derelicts and stuff like vomiting into gutters and, and, and actual street people that were, you know, more or less recognizable in New York at the time as like marching around and doing their kind of crazy preaching in the streets and stuff. Uh, so there is a bit of that, but he, yeah, cause this is his second movie. I guess it's his first straight quote unquote movie. Because the movie he made before this is a, a porno movie called Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy that he's also in under, yeah, hell of a title uh, that he's in, you know, I believe wrote, directed, pro- at least partially produced it and is in it as as well as Jimmy Boy L is the pseudonym that he uses. And there's a lot of the same stuff happening is that it, it reminds me of uh, you ever watched the the pornos that uh, Bill Lustig made before he made uh, Maniac? Same trajectory, let's say, because you know Bill Lustig made uh, Hot Honey and The Violation of Claudia, and both were very very small budgeted uh, uh, X rated films that he scraped enough uh, money together, more or less. That was his film school. And and Ferrara hasn't directly really said that about Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy, but like you can feel it the same way that like Wes Craven made, um, you know, he was editing 
uh, nudie films and what were they called? Like couples movies, quote mm-hmm. unquote, for Hallmark films, I believe it was, and Sean Cunningham before he made uh, Last House on the Left. And then he actually went back and made a porno called um, The Fireworks Woman, uh, which has... Fireworks Woman is probably the closest to Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy because you see a lot of the the hangups that that both artists kind of have. There's the same kind of weird Catholic guilt that's in uh, all of Ferrara's movies or in Nine Lives. The same with like, uh, let's say that the religious repression angle shows up in like Fireworks Woman. But the, the main thing I guess I'm getting at here is that these guys used. Uh, X-rated cinema to more or less just learn how to work a camera and to stage scenes and to, to film stuff and to learn like, Oh, this is how you keep an actual scene in focus when people are talking or fucking. Um, but also nine lives like driller killer. Like it was made just with the city. Like it was the people who are around him. He was part of that scene. I mean that new wave band that's in uh, driller killer, you know, like they were part of that that kind of renegade uh, late seventies, early eighties, like New York art scene that you know people like Bill Landis was was documenting in, in uh, his Sleazoid Express zine and stuff. So like, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of autobiography there, but it's also like, I think unlike Texas Chainsaw, he is purposely provoking you. To where, like, Texas Chainsaw has the, you know, the whole intro with the Larroquette narration that's like, this is, you know, this is all the more tragic because they were young and stuff. But it's it's very grim. It's setting up this tone of, like, inevitable death for these young people that we're about to witness. With Driller Killer, it literally opens with a title card that says, this movie should be played loud. Like, he wants to be in your face. He wants you to feel the blood as it's, like, streaming on him during his character's hallucinations and like he wants you to feel the walls kind of caving in on you and everything a lot like his character is doing. And if only there was some way that he could have incorporated like smell a vision so that we can actually smell this movie. Cause it, it's one of those films that you are like, it just has a, a miasma an aura <laughs> about it. Well, and like you even texted me one of the funnier things is you're like Abel Ferrara eating pizza makes me never want to eat anything again. <laughs> It's revolting. Like <laughs> I was watching that, but I also, I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, but also it could not turn away. It has this like almost um, like live theater kind of feel to it, or like a sure. or like avant garde art of just like a um, like an installation piece of a guy eating pizza. Sure, and I don't think he had that intention, but it really comes across. He's so like real and there, and just he. It, this might be an odd comparison, but in, in a weird way, Ferrara at times reminds me of the the renegade kind of New York independent cinema version of Hunter S. Thompson. Mm. And that Hunter S. Thompson always extolled the virtues of, of in order to document a scene, you have to be a part of it. You have to play a role in it. You have to live that life. And I truly kind of like what you're saying is that you watch Driller Killer, you watch Miss 45, you watch even the, the more stylized stuff that we'll get to as it goes along, stuff like Fear City, um, China Girl, all the way up to King of New York. And it's very much like this one guy's vision of the darker side of a city that he's 
lived in for the majority of his life, let's say, and how he can uh, use it as almost like a mirror to reflect his own uh, personal vision and his own experiences with it. Yeah, totally. It feel. I mean, it does feel very authentic as a film, and you know, there's <laughs> there's some pretension in it, of course. Like, sure. which he's. I mean, he's a pretentious fucking guy, dude. I mean, we'll get to the addiction later, which I think is the ultimate out of the things I've seen um, of just having literally a philosophy student in your film, you know, saying things. But this this kind of like toes the line between that, but also just like full on exploitation, and it's just. Uh, as I watched more of the films, like it really gets under your skin, you know, good or bad. Um, like I thought Texas, I was having fucking nightmares about Abel Ferrara. Cause like I find him to be honestly terrifying. Like again, when I watch, like when I watch Chiller killer, I'm like, I don't trust this human being. Like I wouldn't yeah. want to be alone with him. Period. The filmmaker, you know, oh, no, totally. Like, like you said about Toby Hooper and I think drugs play a good, part in this too because I mean Toby Hooper was high out of his mind when he made well a lot of his movies but I mean Ferrara was a junk what and isn't anymore because he's he's a reformed junkie and Buddhist I believe now um but like he was a junkie he was a heavy user I mean that's reflected in a ton of his movies and all the way up through you know like you said you watch Bad Lieutenant like again he's channeling his own uh, imperfections as a person through these fictional characters that he's creating. Yeah. One of the things I thought I thought about watching it, cause I kept thinking of Schrader. I kept thinking of like Schrader's New York, you know, at that time. And I said that Ferrara seems to be a little bit more aware of who he really is and, and the way he puts himself in the autobiography. Like, it's funny. Schrader puts himself as this like, romantic in the end you think about him in American Gigolo or or you know um John Latour uh Willem Dafoe as well in um like Sleeper who is this like poetic like lost soul like you know ex-drug addict um recovering drug addict and it's like Schrader still has the idea of like no that's me oh 100% (laughs) it's this angelic kind of view of himself it's like you're also a goblin sir we we talk about Trader a lot but Trader is a lot like Woody Allen in that there's almost always not almost always I shouldn't say that but in a lot of his let's say more seminal work even all the way up through the the card counter recently there's almost always a Schrader stand-in the guy who's this lonely ronin warrior who is a poet at night and lives this spartan uh, lifestyle that that has very set rules and is throwing uh, throwing off the establishment entirely and just living outside of uh, uh, on the fringes let's say we're like yeah I mean I'd love to use this as a jumping off point for the next movie Miss 45 I mean because in Miss 45 Ferrara casts himself as a fucking rapist so as a important to the plot rapist exactly because you know the the story for those who haven't seen it very disturbingly, um, this this uh, mute woman, a seamstress, on her way back from work, is raped not once but twice in basically a 15-minute period. Yeah, it's very, very quick succession. She's pulled into an alleyway, 
and that's where Abel Ferrara wearing a creepy like plastic mask. I think that, that's what was in my nightmare too. Was it's that. almost like the plastic mask from uh, Alice Sweet Alice. Yes. A little bit. Yeah, that, that kind of mask. Um, and it's creepy. And then, yeah, there's a guy breaking into her apartment at the same time. She goes home. He's there. He also rips her, but then she kills him. Um, like that's the beginning of her her kind of bloodlust and, and lust for revenge um, on people in the city. And uh, the one thing I will say about Miss 45 is that for all of its exploitative rape revenge kind of trappings, because to me, there are two rape revenge movies that that like 100% define this period and defined even the subgenre within exploitation. And one is I Spit on Your Grave. I yep. believe still to this day, probably the most it's notorious the, one. Yeah. It's like the ultimate one. And then this, like Miss 45 is very much, I think the movie that Mirzarchi claims I Spit on Your Grave is because Mirzarchi has for years claimed that I Spit is really like a feminist work about this woman rising up against the patriarchy after being uh, violated all these times and, and, and taking revenge for all of womanhood. And I think it's total bullshit. I think Mirzarchi's totally jerking off to his his girlfriend at the time Camille Keaton getting raped on screen horribly yeah um but Miss 45 I think actually has that viewpoint I think it owns it quite well because like even before and even after the rapes it's all told from Zoe Loon's perspective or like I spit on your grave kind of almost has like an omnipotent or a, a omniscient, yeah. Um, yeah, like like kind of point of view. Oh, voyeuristic yes. is probably the best word to where like we're looking in through this this magical window as this woman gets just horribly abused by these rednecks. Um, this 45 is all through uh, Zoe Loon's point of view and like how even without the sexual assault, it's like, She's getting catcalled on the street. Like every dude she runs into is just a horrible, like misogynist the entire time. Her boss uh, at the, 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 uh, what is it? What do we it, call it? So, so she's she a, works she, in the garment district of NYC as a seamstress. More so or I less. think he's a designer. Yeah. And then they, he's just a horrible dude. What is, it's interesting because it starts out and you're like, this guy seems coded very gay. Yes, you know, 100%. And, and the first time I saw it, I was like, wait, he wants to have sex with her? It, it's very it's confusing because, right. it, again, the film, you know, codes in that way. And he might be bisexual. It's just kind of very much he's just like after her. Um, it it definitely has compared to it is a it is a big jump, I think, in quality from Driller Killer to, to this. Like, significantly. Oh, yeah, technically, like it's miles ahead. Almost doesn't feel like the same guy in, in terms of how good it looks. Yeah, I, mean, I would say, you know, you have those jumps from like, you know, for me, like Cronenberg, like Rabid to the Brood, you know, where you're like, it seems like part of its budget, but part of it's just like skill and, this, and maturity and to matu a certain yeah. degree. Like you're just honing your storytelling and, and perspective skills. Yeah, and you're l l basing less on what you like and more about who you, you know, what your actual voice is. And I, I think this 45 definitely has even more of a like, a point of view, like you're saying, it really is from Zoe Lynn's character's point of view. 
a lot of just like use of like wide angle lenses, like a lot of like POV shots, you know, of of just like the scene where she's kind of having a panic attack at work after the situation happens. And everyone's leaning toward like, you need some water. You need to sit down. And the, the whole movie has this like really oppressive atmosphere, like the entire thing from the beginning. But I feel like it, he, he ramps it up till the end when it just, you know, I think about the scene. One, one of my favorites is the, the editing of there's a guy cat calling. It's probably midway through the film and he's cat calling women. He's like, Oh, you don't want to fucking talk to me. And then he, and then she walks by, he sees her, but she leaves her bag. And I think she, she drops part of the body part, I believe in the, yeah. and then he, he he's going to bring it to her. And I think he generally just wants to give her her bag, but also use it as a pickup line. And she spins around. It's like this wide angle shot, you and know, the, and the, the gun the barrel, like right in your face, very bad, bad lieutenant. You know, yeah. and it's just this awesome, like beautifully, like beautifully disturbing shot. I think her face is super distorted by the wide angle lens too. And it's just like, it creates this world that you kind of like sink into, um, like really uncomfortable <laughs> kind of, I think to be honest, one of the big, uh, improvements here is the cinematography because yeah. you have a guy who actually worked with a lot of people that we really like uh, during this time period, a guy named James Lemo who shot this, uh, fear city. Um, and I believe the TV movie Ferrara made called the gladiator. Uh, but he also shot like maniac cop for mm. Bill Lustig. Uh, he shot, uh, relentless maniac cop two. Like he, he was just part of this scene and you can feel the difference of like, he's collaborating with another professional to do this and not just like, you know, shooting it totally guerrilla style, even though that was very much part of how this movie was made. Like it is made in the streets, stealing locations, stealing moments, like, and just totally capturing New York as it happens around, uh, Zoe Loon the entire time. And also, like, should highlight, too, this is his second collaboration with the guy who would write uh, the bulk of his movies. Bulk uh, of the series. <laughs> bulk of the series, dude. Uh, <laughs> Nicholas St. John, who I believe his real name is uh, Nicholas Oliveira. Yeah, um, I was looking him up. But they were, like, they've been friends for years and years and years, and they just collaborated together. And also uh, brought in one of his producers, Mary Kane, was his professor when he went overseas. I can't remember what the college's name was, but he basically was born in the Bronx, was moved upstate by his dad, and then went overseas and studied in England. And Mary Kane was like his professor and became his mentor and produced a lot of his pictures kind of going forward, including King of New York. She's listed as a producer on that. And you can feel, again, in a weird way, this guy using these early films as like his film school. Like I'm learning how to do this. And, but this is like such a dramatic jump quality wise, because also according to legend, this is the movie that Michael Mann saw to recruit him to direct, uh, the pilot for Miami vice or crime story. Or no, he directed Miami. Like he directed the pilot. Oh, I'm sorry. Not the pilot. But he directed the pilot of a crime story. He also yeah. directed episodes of Miami, Miami yes. Vice. Yeah, that's I went down that rabbit hole the other night because I was like, oh, yeah. interesting. Because like, also, 
you know, I mean, Schrader and man have a lot of similarities in terms of the kind of, you know, men with an honor code, uh, men alone. I'm alone, not lonely, you know, um, Neil, Neil Macaulay type characters. And it's interesting to like, I would, I would love to be inside of man's head when he saw this film and was like, I'm looking for that. But you think about the way that like man also like, especially with thief, like shoots a city, you know, a city at night. Um, and the well, kind of oppressive so, nature of the city. Man's so like in for authenticity. Yeah. And you like, I bet the technical know how and just how good, like for, th- for this type of movie, like miss 45 looks better than the majority of its contemporaries, especially, you know, once it begins going down that kind of very Ferrara Catholic guilt, moral rabbit hole, of like by the end she's in a fucking nun costume at a Halloween party just lighting people up while it, like the strobe light like light, just lights up the whole room around her and it becomes like borderline psychedelic at times like it's so fucking cool but like I could totally see Michael Mann like watching that and being like all right this guy might be onto something yeah absolutely you know um I think I'd love to see them talk. <laughs> Just see the two of them in a room together. Yeah. Two oh scary men in different ways. Yeah. Two men Michael Mann is very me. terse, very well read, very uh, uh, direct, and able for being like, hey, yo, you know, like when we was making the Driller Killer, I was smoking crack the whole time. You know, I was listening to new wave music and. There's this pizza. They just kept giving it to us for free. You know, you dig. And you're like, yeah, I guess. I counted in one scene because I had on the subtitles because I was having trouble understanding him. A couple scenes, <laughs> and he, he gets that mush mouth, like pure New New Yorker nonsense, like going, and you, it's hard to parse out anything. It kind of reminds me of the way that, like, in Rocky, the first one, where Stallone, like, almost like a nervous tick, tick says, you know. After every line, yeah, he's like, "So I was going down the store, you know," and it's like this tick. And for him, it's man. He says "man" over and over again in Driller Killer. Like, there's one scene where, in like a two minute scene, he says like forty five times. Yeah, like he's on this like doing this monologue. Well, well if you watch uh, even modern interviews with him now or read them, it's you dig. He's always going, you know, you dig. Like I went overseas and I wanted to work with Ethan Hawke. You dig, like because he's just doing this shit and I'm really into it. You dig, like. And it's just like he's never changed. He's always been the same fucking guy. Even his his movies, more or less evolved. Kind of like you brought up Cronenberg earlier, but evolved to where like he stopped making exploitation or like genre stuff at a certain point, and then just started making very abstract outsider uh, art house stuff. He and Willem just hanging. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Defoe collaborations in this. What, four or five? And the late ones, I'm thinking, like, recently. Well, I mean, he had two in the same year. You had uh, Tommaso and, and Siberia. You have 44, 444, Last Day on Earth, or Last Night on Earth, I believe it's called. Pasolini. Um, New Rose Hotel, uh, Pasolini. Pasolini's ter- tremendous, by the way, if you've never seen that one. Um, there's some other ones that, are, that we're missing, though. Go-Go Tales, mm. the uh, one that was supposed to be a Showtime series originally, which is uh, almost like this very odd black comedy where uh, Willem Dafoe's managing a, a failing go-go bar. And he, it's, yeah, it's, it's goofy. It's hard to see because I don't think it ever got an official American release. 
but like you can definitely track down like imports and there might be some, let's say shady sources you can find online to watch it. But yeah, he's made God quite a few, it's like five or six. Him. I'm looking at the, the list here too. I think that might be the, yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, you know, Defoe's basically just jumping back and forth between Schrader movies and Ferrara movies. I mean, <laughs> what a great life. There's, I, I was looking at pictures of Ferrara and it's getting terrified, but there was this one of them. I think it was at, it was at Cannes for one of the recent collaborations, like pre COVID. And like, like Defoe has obviously told a joke to Ferrara and Ferrara is like guffawing, like oh, laughing. Yeah. Like, and is it and, the and, one where Ferrara has those like dark, sunglasses on and, and Defoe's wearing almost like a rainbow sweater. In it's it. really weird. Like what he's wearing. Defoe has his great Defoe grin. He's got a mustache and like, and like full on like mid chortle, like Ferrara has his like hand on his belly. And I'm just like, man, I want, it actually looks like a lot of fun. Like those guys are, they're, they're enjoying themselves. Yeah. Like they're, they're, no, they're in their twilight years and making movies. Imagine just growing down with Willem Defoe in general. Like, I bet you there's some funny shit that comes out of his mouth. Oh, my God. But after Miss 45, we had one that I don't think you actually got around to, which was Fear City. Did not know. Which, to this point, is the most polished of all of his movies. I know a lot of people, it's it's been reclaimed a bit online with people kind of who have been going through his filmography and saying it's better than maybe its reputation or, or maybe isn't held up. Uh, the way that it should be by, by fans of his. It's okay. Like to me, I, th- I think it's okay. It's very slick. Um, it has a, a, a studio polish to it, but I know that he disowns a good portion of it because like it's a New York movie, but he didn't shoot hardly any of it, any of it in New York at all. It's all on sound stages. Yeah. It has a crazy cast in it because it's like Tom Berenger, um, Billy D. Williams, Melanie Griffith, and there's somebody else that I'm forgetting that's in it too. But it's all about kind of like Go Go Tales. It's almost like a, a really like Go Go Tales dry run to where, but it's like this weird, lurid, grindhousey thriller about uh, you know Berenger and, and and Billy D. Williams are basically these like toughs. Who, who operate inside of this, this strip club and, and protect the girls and stuff. And Melanie Griffith's obviously say their main attraction. Cause this is like body double era Melanie Griffith. And there's a killer on the streets, uh, murdering women with a samurai sword. Um, it's weird. It's, it's 90 minutes of real sleazy shit. Like going vi- on. vice squad. Kinda? Vice squad. Yeah. That yeah. would actually be a good comparison or angel. Okay. Would be another good comparison. Um, it fits into that universe, let's say. Uh, I don't love it as much as other people, but it's super entertaining and it's only like 90 minutes. But after that, he does a ton of TV. He does Miami Vice. He does Crime Story. He does uh, a TV movie. Um, I believe with, uh, what's his name? Ken Wall stars in it. Yeah. Um, called The Gladiator. And then he makes... For me, uh, the movie that I think is his unsung masterpiece, which is China Girl. And it's his Romeo and Juliet set inside 
the, the, the world of, of New York street gangs, only instead of the, the Montagues and the, the, the Capulets, it's the Chinese and the Italians going to war against each other and two star-crossed lovers in that. And it's fucking awesome. And I believe it's the first time he shoots a movie with uh, Bojan Bozelli, who would go on to be the King of New York director of photography. And this is the first one, to me, like Fear City kind of starts it, but but you can tell China Girl is like way more Ferrara's like baby because it's all set like on location. It's in the streets, but it's using Bozan uh, Bozelli's uh, lens to capture this whole neon like nighttime war between gangs. And it has David Caruso going full tilt psychopath David Caruso. He literally enters the movie because he's one of the, the gang members. He enters the movie by jumping onto a swinging chain link fence, swinging into the scene and saying something along the lines of surprise motherfuckers and then start shooting people. And you're like, oh, it's David Crusoe just doing. There he is. Just doing his thing. That red fucking hair. God, that everybody's favorite ginger. God. (laughs) But this is the one that I am a little bummed that that you didn't get time to work in because like, to me, I showed this one at Vulcan video during one of our taps and tape screenings and it played great. Um, it's just, it feels like the most complete movie of his to this point. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I missed it. And I, um, you know, if, if anything, one thing I've gotten from watching these films in the last couple of weeks is that I want to watch more. Oh yeah, you know by him, and um, namely because of of one film we'll get to that that really blew me away, where I was like, oh, I'm on the I'm on the wavelength here, like this is working, <laughs> you know, where where a filmmaker clicks for you, sure, and you're like, all right, I like the stuff before, but this is like where it's really at. Um, but yeah, I I definitely will go back. Um, he did an interview. On the movie Crypt, the the podcast with uh, Joe Lynch mm-hmm. and um, the other guy, uh, Adam, who directed Hatchet, Adam Green, Adam Green, yeah, um, their their podcast, um, where he told an interesting story about how uh, he was at a point to where like he had made Miss Forty Five, he had made Fear City, but he was still basically just broke as fuck and living in like an apartment with no heat with these other weirdo artists and whatever and doing drugs and wasn't sure what he was going to do. And then he got the phone call from Michael Mann being like, Hey, do you want to come make this, this show and, and direct some Miami vice? And all of a sudden before he knew it, he was in the back of a limousine, like going to the airport with like nothing but booze and everything and just getting hammered and then going and directing like a Miami vice episode. But he was like, I couldn't believe it while it was fucking happening, you know, because I'm just this fucking street rat from New York. That's all of a sudden like getting flown out to LA to work on this like major production and stuff. And or flown out to, I guess Miami at this point, but to make this major production for TV. And he's like, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Like I just kind of did it. But that again became, I think you see an even more significant jump between, uh, Miss 45 and Fear City and China Girl 
because you have all that TV work in, there's a much more professional polish to China Girl than any of his other movies. And you can feel it's almost like, oh, you spent some time now in the system. Yeah. And like you figured out how like professional productions work and now you're making this type of movie. And like it really pays off because I don't think without that period that you would have the movies that we really love and namely the, you know, the movie that we're going to get to, which is King of New York, which is what this episode's supposed to be about, I guess. But, um, eventually, eventually you do have one calamity though, between China girl and, uh, King, New- King of New York and bad Lieutenant, basically his like real golden run, which is cat chaser, his Elmore Leonard adaptation with, uh, Peter Weller, our boy, which is horrible. <laughs> it's so bad. I'm glad I skipped that one. But by all accounts, now there's an oral history you can find online where they talk to Ferrara and I think Weller and basically everybody involved. Um, so I think Kelly McGillis is the love interest mm-hmm. in it, but it all takes takes place in 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 uh, Miami or like Florida, and it's like. I can barely remember what happens in the movie, but it's just, it's terrible. But by all accounts, uh, it was fucked with the entire time. The producers basically shorted him money and he was just like, he calls it like possibly the worst professional experience of his life. And like he, he wanted to quit movies and stuff again and just basically go back to just doing drugs in the streets, I guess. But like he, like when you watch it, you're like, Mm-hmm. Because apparently there was at one point, like even not like a three hour, like work print cut, but like an actual cut of the movie. Like, I think the final movie might be 90 minutes and it's just totally incoherent nonsense. It's, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> well, moving on then. Well, moving on to King of New York. Yes. That's the next movie. Um, man, this is, I watched it again today before we recorded. This is probably the 25th time I've seen this movie. Totally sucks me in every time. And I just, the one thing that you, you texted me that I think is totally true. And this movie more or less kind of goes against, or at least maybe it's like a different gear that he's working in is the rhythm of his films and like King of New York has a totally different rhythm than anything else he's ever made. Yeah, it's actually I texted you that before I rewatched that. Um, like I was in the mode of his early stuff, and I watched you know <coughs> Bad Lieutenant, which I think is it definitely has more of the rhythm of of the older stuff. Um, oh yeah, one hundred percent. So does the addiction very much. And watching watching King of New York again, especially you think about the way how much classical music is used in it. And it has that kind of sometimes languid, you know, purposely a floating feel, you know, the way that like Frank walks into rooms um, and it's distant in a way. His other movies are not like, it's very icy. Yeah. You're no, you're right. Well, even, even his framing, like he uses a lot of like awesome wides, like some like Kurosawa, like blocking wides of like, or Michael Mann. Yeah. In all honesty, like it feels the most like if he had picked up anything from Mann and used it, King of New York is is the closest, like let, let's say cousin 
No, and it was funny because at the very end, I'm, I'm watching it, and when Victor Argo and Frank, sh- you know, show down, like he tries to have his heat moment uh, yeah. of these two, the you know, the the hunter and the prey, um, and the cop who's kind of on the line and being being pushed toward the edge of will he go will he go beyond the duties of police officer and, and actually kill? Um, and it's not paced like a normal film. It's the script does not follow traditional screenplay structure. Like Heat is a perfect script. Like Heat has sure. all, all the beats. Like you could do it in a screenwriting class. Like that's how you write a script. Like every beat works, leading to that end scene. This doesn't have that. It doesn't make it bad. It just makes it more of this kind of like impressionistic thing at, at moments. Um, well, originally because apparently he had been kicking this movie around since 1985. Mm. And it was originally called Murder One. Hmm. Excuse me. I've been shaking this cold off. But uh, he... It's another Nicholas St. John script. Uh, But originally it was supposed to be starring... um... Oh, what's his name who got replaced in Aliens uh, by Michael Bean? Who was in like shit? He was the dad in Dexter. Oh, um, from from fucking Walter Hill, everything. Yeah, um, Ajax from the Warriors. Yeah, um, I'm hating myself because I love that actor. He's got the best voice, James Remar. James Remar. Yes. Yeah. It, it was originally supposed to be James Remar was the Frank White character, hmm. uh, and it was about. It was supposed to all take place during the last two weeks of his life. And it was about this guy who goes to war with all the gangs at the same time. Kind of like what, I mean, Frank White actually does in the movie. But then also goes to war with the cops and starts putting bounties on cops to take them down. And it was called... Which he does as well. Which he does. So you like you see the threads, but apparently it was a much more in the streets, down and gritty type Abel Ferrara affair. And then it just morphed over time into what we actually got, which is this, I like impressionistic, uh, but it almost feels like a, a weird flip side to Scarface to Mm. where Scarface is all about the ascension to power and American greed and eighties excess and everything. Like King in New York is almost about like, how do you, it's again, that Catholic guilt kind of running through it is that how can you both be a terrible, horrible person, profit from the misery of others, poison an entire community, but at the same time engage in activity that feels like you're trying to cleanse your sins in, in, in real time more or less, because it's all about how Frank White wants to ascend to be the mayor more or less or unofficial mayor of New York is funding a hospital for, yeah. for the underprivileged in a bit a bad neighborhood in a bad neighborhood um, and is really earning his way. And even like when he's recruiting uh, those to, to fight with him, like early on is presenting himself more or less like a, not a Robin hood, but like a, a revolutionary where he's just like, 
he even gives that, that famous speech in it where it's like, are you tired of being ripped off by guys like this? Come see me at the Plaza Hotel. You're welcome. You're all welcome. Like he Shoots screams it at him and screams at him. But it's almost like he sees himself as this odd crusader um, in a weird way. And you wonder how much of that, again, is like Ferrara doing autobiographical stuff about like, I'm this terrible person, but maybe my art is atoning me, or maybe these things that I'm giving back are my ways of of, of uh, cleansing some of this from my soul. Yeah, no, and and when we get to Bad Lieutenant, obviously he was sticking with that for quite yeah. a while, and that, I think he hits that even harder in Bad Lieutenant. Like that's the story. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you kind of take everything else away, and where he's literally hallucinating like conversations with Jesus. Yeah, and shit. which I fucking love. Um. But I mean, that's, I mean, Bad Lieutenant brings uh, Zoe Lund back into the mix because she's, by all accounts, the primary author of the screenplay to Bad yeah. Lieutenant. Uh, because I remember when I interviewed Larry Cohen right before his death, um, we went through a huge chunk of his filmography together. And he told me a story about how when he shot special effects with, uh, Zoe Lund, um, that she was very protective. Like she, she, as he even put it, you know, during that time, cause he, he made two movies that are what he considers his favorite movies back to back is he made perfect strangers and then he made special effects. And they were all with this very, uh, tight knit weirdo kind of community. Like Eric Bogosian mm -hmm. is in special oh, effects yeah. and like, but it's this weirdo art house community that was really thriving in New York during the eighties from that kind of avant-garde theater scene and everything. But like Zoe Lund was basically showing up to set every day with her purse, which was more or less like her worldly possessions were in there. And one of the things that was in there, Cohen told me was this script that she was super protective of and wouldn't let anybody read and, like would always check on and be like, Oh, is it still in my bag? Is it still in my bag? And he'd be like, yeah, it's fine. It's cool. And like, it turned out it was the script for bad Lieutenant the whole time is that even when she wrote it, she just had this like deep connection to it. Like this was her movie, you know, like this was the, the thing that was going to more or less like make her career with. And then Abel comes along and, and directs it for her. It, um, that's the film where he clicked with me. Like where I, I put it off for years. I remember seeing it at the video store. It was NC 17 for like notorious movie. Yeah. And, and like, vi you know, for violence and I think foul language and sexuality were like the, on the back on the and, rape. Yeah. So, but I remember on the back of the VHS okay. and I was just like, Oh, this looks intense. And I'm like, well, it's also one of those ones that were like, if you rented it at blockbuster, you got the shortened R rated version. Oh, too, Cause there were two different tapes that float around. You had to make sure you bet because I remember renting it from Blockbuster and then having a friendly. It was like, well, you didn't see the whole movie. And you're like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, if you rent it from Blockbuster, it's not actually ours. NC 17, you got to go to like the mom and pop down the shop or down the street. And you went and watched it. And you were like, oh shit, they actually did cut a lot out of this movie. <laughs> like, Mo movie gallery in Franklin, Indiana had the NC 17. Yeah. We, we didn't fuck around. Um, we didn't have a Blockbuster. Um, I think I got one. I think I rented it from Wizard Video in. in <laughs> Uh, Downingtown, Pennsylvania. But anyway, it's um, a notorious film to the point of like it warranted two different VHS releases. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really um, 
it, I mean, it, it takes you to hell. I mean, it, for at the be the beginning of the film, and it that's why I really like the the redemption story because it it earns how horrible he is before, and it earns the the world he lives in. Um, to so it makes the it makes what he's reaching for all the more kind of amazing. And any other film that literally puts like Jesus like walking down a the, crucified uh, bloody Jesus, crucified bloody Jesus early in the film, like okay, and then there's a scene where he turns around and there's this this amazing scene where like again Kaitel is just game for this movie. Like, <laughs> You know, we we use a lot in the, on the podcast, but game, right? When there's an actor who just like gets what the filmmaker wants and it says, I'm going to go all the way for you. And yeah. that's Kaitel in this movie. But this scene, like we were joking before we recorded about the way he can cry and the way he can wail. And he's got that like, just that pain. Like he, he grits his teeth and he's like, his know? eyes start welling. They're like swelling. And he's just really fucked up. And, but it's the scene where this and reservoir dogs are the one, two punch of Kaitel crying. You just can't, <laughs> <laughs> you just, can't, you can't beat it. You know, <laughs> I'm going to make that my uh, alarm in the morning to wake up to. That'd be fucked up to wake up to. <laughs> but well, he, only one has Har- Harvey Kaitel buck ass naked crying. though. Oh God. Covered in booze, dick out. Like doing the, the the Jesus on the cross pose, that was the moment I I remember even early on watching this movie and like I really like it too. I don't love it as much as the other stuff of Ferraris that I really like, but I respect it a whole bunch. But I remember watching it for the first time and getting to that scene and being like, "Oh God!" <laughs> well, something we talked about as well as the obvious connections with like the Safety brothers. I mean, like this is a very similar story to plot and and subject matter to uncut gems of a kind of a deplorable human. Again, we talk about the, you know, the hanging over of, of the debt of gambling debts and always, always one step behind, but also such a fuck up. He goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Like if he'd stopped the beginning, he had the $30,000 to pay his way out of it. Right. But it, you know, for a, a filmmaker who from the films I've seen, doesn't always have the firmest like plot points that, you know, in terms of causality of one thing leading to another, right. Uh, in terms of that classic screenplay structure, this one has some of the better, I think of his films where it really does build this moment of, he has the money in hand. He has $30,000. He collected for drugs that he stole out of police lockup and gave to a dealer. He has the money and has these two guys who, if he takes them in, then he will ha- probably get the rest of the money. He can buy his way out of of his debt, but the nun doesn't want him to do it. Like she says, she already forgave these boys and wants to basically give them another chance. And it's this great scene of you know he puts the kids on the bus with the money after slapping them. It's like yeah, I'm gonna let you go, but I don't like you. You know, you right. pieces of shit. And then he does it. Then he does the. Again, you know, and what a great, I thought the film ended there because he walks away and it could. And then nope, it, it has just, that incredibly bleak ending. The best coda, I mean, ever. One of my favorite endings is him just, um, he, you know, drives up, he parks in this open, probably on, it's like Times Square, it looks like. Yeah, it looks like, like 42nd Street. Yeah, it's like right, it's like downtown New York and he's just sitting there for a second. All of a sudden a car pulls up, Hey copper, bam, bam, bam. And it's just this like 
multi-minute scene of people like kind of milling around the car. Yeah. What happened to this guy. But I think the film really lands. I mean, I like a good kind of redemption story and I, I, I like that it's not a redemption story where it's like road to perdition with Tom Hanks. <laughs> you know, it's not, oh, I was a bad guy and I kill people. It's like, no, this guy's the worst motherfucker. Like Ever. he's, re- he's revolting in this movie. And for him to, to actually get out of that. And, and I think that story is more clearly told in, in that versus King of New York. I still love King of New York. I think as a film, I think visually and, and tone wise, I like King of New York better, but in terms of that, that kind of journey of the character, I prefer, um, bad Lieutenant. No, I still like King of New York more, but like, it's one of those like, you know, do you enjoy champagne or do you enjoy fine wine? Yeah. You know? Oh, totally. So, um, I wouldn't argue that with anyone who picked one or the other. I will say uh, the one thing that I think King of New York has that allows Bad Lieutenant to exist is his ability with actors oh, that yeah. I think he's severely undervalued and, and how well, and obviously cause he's earned the trust and, and the collaboration uh, of uh, guys like Chris Walken, like Walken's incredible in King of New York, like a total, like I like when I think of Chris Walken, that's the first movie I actually think of. I know people are like deer hunter or, um, small role like Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction, like he he has a million iconic roles, but like King of New York is the first one that comes to mind, and the fact that like Walken's another one that's worked with him four or five times because you have King of York, King of New York, The Funeral, which is kind of a companion piece to it. That's the uh, period gangster movie he would make in the mid '90s with him. The Addiction. Um, the Addiction, where he shows up in a very bit part, but basically steals the whole movie in that, <laughs> that whatever, five, ten minutes or whatever he's, he's in it. Um, New Rose Hotel is another one. I feel like a missing one. But, like, he got a guy like Chris Walken to work with him multiple times. He got uh, Willem Dafoe to work with him multiple times. Harvey Keitel makes back-to-back films with him because he makes... Uh, Bad Lieutenant, and then a movie I watched for this podcast, uh, Dangerous Game, his his studio film that he made with uh, uh, Madonna and Harvey Keitel, where Harvey Keitel more or less plays Abel Ferrara, and that's, I was telling you before we started recording, like, that was one of the few, maybe the only one left that I hadn't seen before, and that's like Ferrara's Contempt, where it's all about this... Uh, drug-addled, sex-addicted director who's making a movie about a drug-addled, sex-addicted protagonist whose relationship is falling apart, all while his real-life relationship with his like wife and kid is dissolving kind of before your eyes, and he starts an affair with Madonna. So it's like... But it's this smashed... Uh, almost like fake behind the scenes of, of this movie that, that Keitel playing the director is making. And it, it'll cut between like finished scenes from the movie to like this very smashed, like, like video uh, behind the scenes stuff with like Keitel, like walking people through their, 
their motivations and what he wants to get out of the scenes and like the difference between like improvisation and like what the script was and stuff. And like, you're just watching it. But one of the things that kind of like what you just said with the game comment is that you're watching this and you're like the level of commitment that he requires from so many of these people uh, and these performers, these artists is like, like Madonna's really fucking good and dangerous game. And she mostly just gets slapped and kicked around the entire movie and is just crying and in hysterics. But like he got fucking Madonna in 1993 to commit to this role. Yeah. Like, you know, he's making this very odd avant-garde, uh, like, autobiographical movie with fucking Harvey Keitel and the other guy um, who's in it, whose name I'm, I'm blanking on, but it's just, it's a very, very strange bleak film. Um, but again, another one that I, I do want to talk about because arguably again, it's maybe the, the performance that steals all of King of New York fucking Lawrence Fishburne in King of New York is like next level. And Lawrence Fishburne to this day, apparently considers Jimmy Jump his favorite role that he's ever had. He's he's and amazing. fucking Morpheus. He's he's really phenomenal in it. And that cast alone, we got Caruso and like Wesley Snipes, like everybody fucking shows Victor up. Argo. Victor Argo, just really doing full Victor Argo. And, you know, he's really... There's something like you said about like the way he directs actors too that's like kind of lyrical like the way that they, the way they speak, but also the way they move. And so like, right. you know, we all now know that Christopher Walken is like a dancer. We had the fat boy slim video. It's like kind of common knowledge that he right. can dance. And this is the one of the ones I can remember where it's like really plays with that, with his physicality. Um, again, like the, one of the first times when he sees all his, his boys again, is that, that great little dance he does. And it's like, his it kind of plays up his his lurching nature, his huge body. Um, there's a physicality to the whole movie that really works, like for everybody, you know. And Fishburne's the same way, yeah, exactly. Like, right? Fishburne is just slinking through scenes the entire time, yeah, like hunched over, like shoulders to the floor, like always again, like moving more or less like rhythmically through, yep. through these scenes. And one of the best scenes in the whole movie, that scene in the 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 fried chicken oh, man. shop where he, again, it's the weird towing the line of the morality in his movies to where it's about this bad man who comes to this chicken shop, more or less accosts the guy behind <laughs> the counter. Because the guy behind the counter is being kind of a condescending dick to, to both him and this poor older family. woman, it, uh, this poor, it, it almost looks like a grandma Who's to, who has her like grandchildren out there eating, but they don't have enough money for the games to go play. And like Fishburne literally goes through and gives them all quarters so that they can go play and like scolds this guy. Gives for her a hundred bucks attitude too. And yeah, pays for their meal and everything. But then the scene ends with him getting fucking arrested. So it never lets you forget. It's like, I think that's the one thing that Ferrara does so well is that, he never is doing, and it's the one thing where I don't 100% agree with labeling Bad Lieutenant a redemption story, is that there's still bad people. He's And he's not afraid of being yeah. like, bad people are still capable of doing good things. You're not defined by the the one. And I think that's a lot of the addict kind of coming out in him too, of being like, a drug addict can still be a good person. A rapist can still be a good person. 
well, maybe not a rapist, but like, you know, like there's a line that he draws of being like, these guys are fucking dead ass murderers, drug dealers, poisoning an entire community, but they still take the time out to take care of these people around them. And it's like, he embraces the idea that people aren't just one thing. They're yeah. Yeah. the, the some collection of all their experiences and vices and thoughts and sexual urges, let's say, which there's a lot of uncomfortable ones in Ferrara's filmography, but it's just a fascinating thing to watch. And also like, again, that he gets these people, these, these great performers to commit to these roles that are, incredibly dark like jimmy jumps death scene in this is one of the most haunting things i've ever seen on screen where he's just like laugh crying laughing and screaming until he's finally shot in the head by david caruso at the end man if i die don't let it be david caruso that does me in what a way to go no i'd be fine if david caruso just shot me i'd be like you know what you got it (laughs) i hope he calls me some weird racist thing like in the end too because there's a lot of icky shit that comes out of Caruso's mouth. Like Caruso, again, he's working with young Caruso and he's letting Caruso go full Caruso. Yeah. And all of them, like he's lecherous in both, in both China girl and King of New York. Yeah. There's something to the redemption note though. Um, I, I think we can still call belly center redemption film, but maybe just like his version. This, I don't want to get semantics argument here, but like, his version of redemption is not this person is now a good person and they are changed is they had a moment to do the right thing and they did it, you know, like, and I think that it builds right. to that one moment where it's like, he's still a piece of shit. He's still gonna get killed for all the things he's done, but doesn't change the one good thing he did when it came down to it. Right. Well, to you your know? point, he's also like, you can see the clear scripted arc. Yes. Occurring. Yes. So like, yeah, it's, it's, it's the best a to B to C story in that early portion of his career, maybe actually ever that he's ever had. And I think that's what's resonated with so many people is that it's like that and Kaitel's horrible, sweaty penis. But like, it's just, it sticks with you because you're like, okay, I see what you're doing here. And it's the most focused maybe of all of his Mm. films. You know, what movie is not his most focused the addiction, yep. which I still like. Uh, nonetheless, I think it's minor Ferrara, but I think it's real interesting Ferrara. But you struggled with it. I say I struggled with it. I had actually started it before. I think I don't think I even knew you totally yet. I rented it from Vulcan years ago, and I started it. And the like really art house black and white nineties thing. I'm like, nope. And yeah. I just like I turned it off. And and like the philosophical musings in the first ten minutes. I, I never and then I sat down yesterday and I said, I'm gonna watch the whole thing. And it was it definitely has that rhythm of his earlier stuff. Um it's on the streets. Well visually again there's a key collaborator that's that, that kind of comes in and shoots a lot of his movies from that point forward. He even shot like, uh, um, dangerous game as well. Um, who's Ken Kelsch Mm. is his director of photography and he would shoot, he shot, uh, uh, bad Lieutenant, the addiction, uh, uh, new Rose hotel, 
Like he shoots the majority of his stuff from this point forward. A lot of his documentaries and stuff because he was, I believe, a war photographer at mm. one point. I might be mixing that up, but I know Ferrara has, has quoted his time in combat, let's say, as bringing uh, a, a sort of realism to the movies and that kind of jangly handheld feel to something like the addiction and stuff. But like Kelsch came to redefine the way these movies looked. There's no more of Bojan Bazelli's uh, glacial, icy, uh, 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 very precise compositions. Um, it's again, it, you're, you're, you're kind of hanging on by a wire the entire time, or they're walking on a wire the entire time. And he's down in the gutter, really getting you in this, this, grimy vision of New York where it's kind of a vampire movie. Yeah. But not really. Yeah. It, I mean, it's the, the, the least veiled vampire to drug addiction. It's called the addiction for crying out loud. Right. And also, and also AIDS, you know, so it's, yeah. it's really, and this was not the first, nor was it the last film to use vampires as an allegory for the AIDS epidemic. Um, and, but there's a movie in the movie that I want to see more. I like the idea of a really pretentious philosophy department being taken over by vampires and culminating yeah. in this like dissertation party. Like the beats in there, I'm like, that's great. And also Lily Taylor is always amazing. Like I, I, and it's Anna, is it Annabelle Sciorra? So here's the thing. I was going to text you this and I wish I had, but I can tell you in person she could do anything she wants to me. Sure. Just, I think Annabelle Scorer is one of those beautiful women. Step on your face. Just beat the shit out of me. And her pixie haircut, pulling her off the street, was like, just, sure. just kill me. I don't give a shit. Annabelle Scorer. And that's a great, a well-shot scene, that awesome, like, weirdly shaped alleyway. Right. With, like, the, the, um, the lattice work kind of giving her this, like, those shafts the of light, sh- shafts of light on her face, and she and she's really scary looking too, and very, and very sexy too. You know, um, it's a really well put together scene, and I, I believe this is the time period where drug addiction really took hold of Ferrara too, mm. because they made, I believe he makes a studio movie before this or right after this. He makes his body snatchers with Forrest. Right Whitaker. before it's 93. Is that right before? Yeah. He, Cause he makes that with Forrest Whitaker. And I believe that's the one Stuart Gordon wrote, uh, and Ferrara directed. Someone it's, impressive wrote it. It's pretty good because it all takes place on a military base and it has the, the same kind of Ferrara, like, uh, snotty anti-authority yeah. air about it. And it's all about the, these, uh, these soldiers and, and stuff getting, um, uh, possessed, uh, by the aliens. Oh, it's Larry Cohen. I'm okay. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of who, which Stuart Gordon. Anyway, I oh, know this is when Stuart Gordon wrote honey. I shrunk the kids. Um, but anyway, uh, it, his body snatchers is very good. Um, but like all of his indie stuff during this period is more or less him just wrangling with drug addiction because he makes the funeral, I believe right after this, which is his reteaming with Walken, uh, for a period crime movie with him, uh, Annabelle Sciorra, Chris Penn is in it. Vincent Gallo. No, Vincent Gallo 
is key to this. The, the funeral is very good. It's very mournful and weird and, and, and quite sad. Um, but there's a story, I believe, that Vincent Gallo told on Letterman or Leno, one of the late night talk shows, where he apparently got into a fist fight with Abel Ferrara because he came back to his hotel or wherever they were staying uh, and found Ferrara in his room high on crack trying to steal his wallet so he could buy more crack. Um, so he had some issues. Yeah. And then he made a movie called The Addiction with a very clear addiction metaphor in it. Um, but I mean, this is also part of like what... Not only the addiction, but uh, dangerous game is wrangling with, uh, and then he made one of his movies that I believe is one of his most undervalued in the late '90s with Matthew Modine, called *The Blackout*, and it's about a guy uh, who, an artist who's who's struggling with addiction, struggling to stay sober, is interacting with all these very strange figures. Dennis Hopper plays like a uh, an avant-garde like video art almost like a lynchian video artist um and the the highway or the, the blackout has a lot of similarities to to lost highway um in that it becomes about a guy who blacks out and more or less ruins his life because he can't let go of, of alcohol and crack and cocaine and but again it, it's ferrara working out all of his kinks and all of his his personal problems on screen in a very autobiographical way, which <coughs> to be completely honest is really impressive because like this guy has operated more or less outside of the system, like the entire time. And has just found ways to get money to keep making movies and makes movies to this day. I mean, he had a one, two punch in the last couple years of, of Willem Dafoe movies with Tommaso and Siberia where Tommaso is another autobiographical movie about an... It's about him. Yeah, in, it's in about Europe. him living in Europe, being married to a younger woman, and all of his insecurities whenever she interacts with, with and the, another his man. his daughter is in the movie. His daughter's in the movie, and it's about the artist that Willem Dafoe plays is struggling to, to finish this very strange, abstract dream picture, Siberia. which is more or less <laughs> Siberia, which Willem Dafoe also stars in. But like you watch these movies and there's like outside of Ferrara's name being on it and like him being able because of his relationships with like guys like Defoe and everything throughout the years. Um, like like beyond that, like you, you can't see any commercial upside to these movies. <laughs> who is all. this for? <laughs> yeah. Who exactly is this for outside of Abel Ferrara? And us, you know maybe. what I'm saying? And like, yeah, us, but like people like Kino and stuff are putting these movies out. I mean, he's also making these crazy weird documentaries like the projectionist that, that Kino also put out about a lifelong projectionist who has lived through the, the, the multiple generations of, of, of New York, uh, theater going and talks about everything from like grindhouse pictures to like the IFC center to just the modern day indie movies and stuff. And like he made Chelsea on the rocks. He made, um, uh, Napoli, 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 which started about as a documentary about a, a women's prison that became something totally different. Um, like you can just traverse his entire filmography and be like, this guy has no, 
muse outside of himself. What he's and interested like, in. And what he's interested in. And he's not going to let some, something as simple as money stop him from pursuing this. Like, he's a true artist, like, to the core, and will die an artist. Look in the way Abel Ferrara does. You know, like, hearing you say that and, like, thinking about him and watching, like, Driller Killer and, and some of his earlier stuff, too, is, like, it makes me feel ashamed that I mean I don't want to live the life he's lived, but like I do want to, but I do want to be a working artist, right? You know, and so I see a guy. Well, he who, also ex- to be fair, keep going, and I, I I have a counter to what you're about to okay. say. Okay, no, I just I just see someone like him, and and I know he's had a, a rough go of it, but and and never had an easy stream of money and easy stream of hits to kind of like subsidize his career, but just someone who's like. Like you said, has a vision and it changes from time to time and what he's interested in, but is always in that like artistic mindset. And it make it makes sense why someone like Defoe would would kind of bond with him, sure, or walk in because that, that's that's kind of how Defoe is and he has in the last couple of years or the last ten years where he's just like he does all kinds of shit, you know, like he, it's where it's where his. There is Interest some goes. one for me, yeah, or or one for them with, with Defoe though. I mean, because he was you know. In the Spider-Man films, like and he's he in was, the, he's in the new one too. Yeah, so I mean, like Defoe has found a really interesting way to balance the commercial with his art. Um, where Ferrara barely was commercial outside of like working in in Miami Vice, and even those felt like, well, I need money, and I'm not going to say no to Michael Mann. Like Body Snatcher, even when you watch Body Snatchers, it's a total like. Who's this for? What are we doing here? Because I think Bojan Bazelli might have shot that too. Um, but like, like 15 years after a really great remake that already happened. That yeah. Kaufman did too, you know? It's a very strange movie, but it's still pretty fucking good. Um, but yet, yeah, the one thing I'll counter with when we say like, oh, we, we wish we could do that, we aspire to do that. The problem is that Abel Ferrara existed in a time period when you could do that. Yeah. In a, a version of that version of New York, just like that version of Austin does not exist anymore. It's one of the things like Linklater slacker. Austin is gone. That's gone. You yeah. can't, there's no more tamale house where like, if you had 10 bucks, you could feed yourself for a week, you know, while you made, your your avant-garde acid jazz in the one bedroom apartment that you you have above whatever vintage shop is on like North Loop. You know, like <laughs> you know, like those days are gone. Yeah. It's the same with like that world that literally the New York that that Ferrara documents, because that's part of the thing that's amazing about his movies now, too, is that they're very much documents mm. of a city that doesn't exist anymore. Like that Times Square, that final shot of of Bad Lieutenant. That's gone. Like, that's now Disney World because of, of uh, Giuliani and, and broken windows and, like, the way that they cleaned and corporatized that entire city up. Like, that's, that's completely gone. So when you watch a Ferrara movie, you're transported in a weird way. Even King of New York, which yeah. is incredibly stylized, you're transported to, to a city that doesn't exist anymore. But it was one of the things that, like, have you seen uh, Todd Haynes's uh, Velvet Underground doc yet? Not yet, no. 
So that's one of the things that I, I had a thought while watching that. And I had a similar thought while revisiting some of the Ferrara stuff for this podcast is that one of the cool things about his Velvet Underground doc is outside of documenting one of the greatest bands that ever existed, it is a snapshot of a time period when you could be a Jewish kid from, New- from Long Island who moved into the city because he wanted to get away from his family and live for no money in some weird tenement building in like the Upper East Side with nothing but like a bunch of artists and pay rent for scrape together like 50 bucks a week or whatever. But all they did was write songs and, and you know, he worked with like John Cale, like that avant-garde composer. I love John like, Cale. But like that, that time period, it was because that city existed. That's the reason why the velvet underground exists. That's the reason why Abel Ferrara exists. And that's the reason why, those types of artists these days are few and far between because like you can't be a starving artist in New York. You can't be a starving artist in on Austin. You can't be a starving art. You certainly can't be a starving artist in LA anymore, but like Ferrara is allowed to keep making these movies because of the past, because of the past and because of the yeah. time where he existed. So it's, it's a bummer when you, when you consider it overall, but at the same time, that's history. Yeah, no, absolutely. Were you ready for questions? Definitely. All right, let's do it. Questions about Abel Ferrara's King of New York, Martin. What are we starting with here? Double feature? Yeah. All right. Let me start. Um, I want to pair it with the house that Jack built. You give me the evil eye. The Lars von Trier film. Yeah. 
Um, I don't really like Von Trier that much, uh-huh. um, but I found interesting the idea of like kind of a beast who wants something more. Like there's that image in House Jack Built where he's in hell. Sure. And kind of like the artist reaching out wanting more. Both autobiographical in, in huge ways. Again, not a big Von Trier fan, but I actually like that film a lot. I uh, am a Von Trier fan, um, and I like that movie a lot. I, I, lo- I love the movie. I just couldn't imagine sitting through another movie along with The House That Jack Built. Because, A, it's a, it's very long. Because if I remember right, it's like two hours and 40 mm-hmm. minutes There's, or so. The director's cut's like almost three. Yeah, it ain't quite Nymphomaniac long, but like it's still pretty fucking long. And it's... Un, it's very, very funny in a weird way, but it's also wildly unpleasant in a lot of other ways. Yeah, I'm not saying the double feature is going to be enjoyable. I'm th- thinking thematically. Which links. movie would you play first? We, we got to fall down this rabbit hole for a second because you just took two disparate uh, movies and put them next to each other. And I'm, I'm like looking at the connection being like, I guess, but also you're asking me to sit in the theater for like six hours to watch these things. Well, I would pair it. It would be paired with, um, bad Lieutenant. Oh, so not King of New York. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah. I was, I was imagining King of New York and house that Jack built. Ap- and I apologies. Was like, Holy shit. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, sorry. I know we've done this in the past where pick one film out, okay, of, out yeah. of the group. Bad Lieutenant? Yeah. That makes way more sense. Those two. Both of these beastly characters, both autobiographical stories, <sighs> both reaching for something more. It's an unpleasant day at the movies. That's five hours. It's five hours of debauchery, of having to watch Harvey Keitel jerk off in front of random teenagers. Watch, uh, watch Matt Dillon Matt slice the boob open of oh, Riley Kehoe. God, yeah. Just. Dude, the kid... In House That Jack Built, when he makes the weird, like, Mr. Death, like, scarecrow thing oh, in the freezer. God. Yeah, like, there's, that movie's unfucking pleasant It's the only uh, uh, word I can keep coming back to. Although, to your point, very pretentious. Um, and works as, not just autobiographical, but honestly, almost works as, like, auto-critique. Mm. To a certain degree, because he's very much like taking into account all of the things that people have said about him over the years in terms of like his like perceived misogyny in Von Trier's movies and how he's working out his aggressions toward women and also like him dealing with like depression with like stuff like melancholia. Yeah, that's. Wow. So it makes sense. It makes it makes more sense once you clarified Bad Lieutenant. I still don't know if I would buy a ticket to it because I want to feel better about life. And that's not going to do it for me. Um, I figure we're going to go to hell, go all the fucking way. It's I mean, literally really, in that one. I yeah, mean, he by the end of, goes to hell. Because you got to do House that Jack built second. Yeah. Right. No, because you keep going down. Yeah, like you. Well, because you can't ask anybody to follow that. It's anything. almost like if Zeppelin just came up and played "Stairway to Heaven" for twenty minutes, and they were like, "And now, <laughs> the Kinks." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, I guess, um, yeah, because that's the other thing. The one thing I will say that I think is different between the two movies is that Von Trier's much more self-aware, yes. or maybe metatextual is the be- the better descriptor there 
um, where again, he's taking in and, and kind of digesting these critiques and making fun of some of them and throwing them back in the faces of his, his critics a little bit where like Ferrara is very much like, I'm a piece of shit. I know I'm a piece of shit. You don't have to tell me I'm a piece of shit. I'm going to give it to you on screen. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. Cause like you could watch it as like the, like the masochism episode or masochism double feature of <sighs> two men, like yeah. warring with themselves in different ways. Like one man in a much more intellectual, like I'm aware of what I'm doing as I'm doing it. One guy much more like Harvey Keitel screaming at you <laughs> yeah. like from the screen. I think it's much more primal. Right. With what he does. And, and I feel like Brian Trish is more controlled. Um, well, except for the Uma Thurman stuff in, in House That Jack Built when she's like screaming at the screen at oh, a certain yeah. point. I like that shit. Ooh. That, that movie is, I'll tell you what, both anchored by very great uh, performances because Dylan in yes. House That Jack Built is really, really good. Yeah, I went to see that the Alamo played the one night only director's, like director's cut. cut. When I was, was at that too <laughs> before we knew each other. Um, and I'm sitting in the audience, and again, like I've seen everything he's done, and it's one of those filmmakers that like I'm never going to skip a Ron Trier film. No, you I, can't. I, I just I don't like his. No films matter that much. how reprehensible he becomes as a person, like you still got to consume his art. He also has like some of the most like perfect cinematic images I've ever seen. I mean, like, there's yeah. shots of Antichrist, the slow-mo run. It's just like, I don't know how you shot that. It's perfection. It's like, it's gorgeous, you know? Yeah. And so... Well, I mean, even the snowy street stuff in House that Jack Built is yes. amazing, too. Oh. Nymphomaniac's a really good-looking movie. That's one of my favorites of his, mm. even though it's just as much an endurance test, if not more so. I think it is more. It's um, hard to get Because I really I like again. Uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg in it. Um, I like her in everything. I just like her. Double feature for you? Uh, I was going to stick with our traditional parrot with the movie the that mo- we're talking okay. about. Uh, it would be King of New York with one of Ferrara's later movies, Welcome to New York, which we haven't discussed yet. It's his, uh, let me look real quick, 2014 movie with Gerard Depardieu. This is... One of the movies, because the one thing we haven't really discussed about his career is there was a point uh, during the late, I want to say late 90s, where he moved and started just making movies primarily in Europe. Um, A lot of stuff in Italy, France. Um, And like part of it was because of money, you know, and part of it was because of subject matter. Like, you can probably get money, and the two are obviously not mutually exclusive, but you could probably get a lot more money for a biopic about, an experimental biopic about uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini in Italy (laughs) than you can (laughs) in in the United States. Same with Welcome to New York, which you haven't seen this one, correct? It's more or less a fictionalized account of the sexual assault that Dominique uh, Strauss-Kahn perpetrated against a maid. And for those uh, who don't know who Dominique Strauss-Kahn is, he was a French economist. Uh, He was head of the international... Hold on, I'm looking it up. International Monetary uh, Fund. I'm I'm, I'm afraid. A member of the the French Socialist Party who was uh, tied up in numerous 
uh, sexual scandals, including where he apparently raped and beat, savagely beat a uh, maid in a hotel that he was staying in, I believe in New York City, uh, hence the title. And he's played in this one as Mr. Devereaux uh, by Gerard Depardieu. In who also has been the yeah, me too has his yes yeah uh, his own problems with women we'll yes. say um, Gerard Depardieu is disgusting in this film like it might be the only Ferrara protagonist that rivals Harvey Keitel in terms of pure repulsiveness he's just a man who exists. It's almost in a weird way, kind of like uh, Ferrara's Wolf of Wall Street before Wolf of Wall Street like existed, because this is just a man who has reached a level of power where he believes he's above the law. There's no, like whatever he does, he can buy his way out of it, and he does nothing but drink and eat and fuck, and like it's all depicted There's in hedonism. Ferrara-esque graphic detail, like... There's one part where he just fucks this girl in the mouth, like for, yeah, and it's it's unedited, totally gross, and it's Gerard de Perdue, like really, no pun intended, leaning into it, um, and like it's gross, and but it becomes about how he assaults this uh, immigrant maid, and more or less wrestles with the idea that anyone would think that this is wrong, that he is not allowed to do this. And again, there's this long stretch in the back half of the movie where it's just Day Perdue wandering around, pondering in his own head in French about what a great man he is and how he's done so much for society and all this and what it takes to be a great man and blah, blah, blah. But again, it's playing with the same sort of duality. It almost marries uh, Frank White and the nameless lieutenant from Bad Lieutenant into one character in that it's about this guy who thinks that any kind of... Uh, good deed that he does, whether he's responsible or not for it, if he plays any part in it, it just, it's almost like his, his, his get out of jail yeah. free card. Um, and it's again, playing with that, that notion we were talking about before of like Ferrara presenting you with just an awful, uh, like troll of a human being and still being like, these people can, can think that they, they can perform good acts and they can think that they're good people, but they're not. They're, they're horrible. And it's, it's also noteworthy because uh, Ferrara got in a lot of trouble with IFC Films who put it out in the United States in an R-rated cut. Um, so because it was something to do with like, vi- I think video sales and like playing on cable, because like, I think they sold the rights to like Cinemax or... <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Showtime or somebody, but in order to play the pay cable window or whatever that they had for it, it had to be R-rated, so they trimmed it down. And for, they did it without Ferrara's knowledge that they did it, and he found out and publicly like lambasted uh, like IFC Films, basically called them 
and this isn't like abridging more or less like fucking scumbags and like did it all in like public interviews of like that film's not my fucking movie whoever those fucks are at IFC films who did this they're all fucking scumbags they don't know anything about art fuck all those people and you're just like yeah they're the ones in charge of like putting your movie out like maybe you shouldn't but it was like kind of similarly to like what Schrader did to bring our boy up again with Dying of the Light that Nick Cage movie that was edited without his uh, approval. Um, and like he, and I believe Nick Cage and somebody else in, in the, the cast that was in there, they did their very public protest of it where they taped their mouths closed and stuff. I remember um, that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it was a similar situation, but like Ferrara was like, nobody's muzzling me. I don't give a fuck. Like what you say, I make my movies on my own terms and you knew exactly what, what movie you were buying <laughs> because it's very hard to get the uncut version of the movie in America now because any disc that you get that's IFC films is the R rated cut. You have to go and find either a torrent or like a, a French, a, a French disc or something from overseas to, to see the full unedited version. And it's, I mean, I shouldn't really make fun of you for your pairing of bad Lieutenant and, and house that Jack built because like welcome to New York is a grueling, <laughs> unpleasant experience. Um, that's not, doesn't even have the sense of humor about itself that, uh, house that Jack built does like, this is just, you know, a window into the soul of an, an unredeemable man or yeah. an unredeemable monster really. And it's, but I mean, it pairs really well with King of New York in a, a few weird ways. And I would just, I'd love to just see that movie on the big screen because like most Ferrara movies, it looks great. So next question. And this one's obviously relatively speaking for you, but top three Ferrara go. Yeah. I mean, um, not obviously I haven't seen the whole uh, filmography, as you said, um, but I would say Bad Lieutenant easily my number one. Um, again, as a film, I, I put it off for so long and it ended up really clicking with me. Um, I was very, just like from the filmmaking standpoint, it's very beautiful. Like the performances is amazing. Performances across the board are amazing. Also just like the pacing of the film, um, the arc, as you said, in the script, definitely there Two, I'd say King of New York. Um, it's fucking gorgeous. It's the, <laughs> the film we're talking about is the first I ever saw by him. Walk-In's amazing. Has its own very unique rhythm and vibe to it. Um, also has that, you know, yeah, like said, Michael Mann kind of style of the city or it's like realism mixed with this like very kind of mythic quality as well. Sure. Um, and I would honestly say, I think Driller Killer would be my third. Um, like I like Ms. 45. I really don't in the end like addiction. Um, I really like, um, I like how raw it is. Like it's not a film I want to watch all the time, but by the end, sure. <laughs> if I just came in on a random Monday and you're like, I'm watching driller killer again, mm -hmm. I'd be like, are you okay? Well, do you want to hear a weird story? Driller killer before I forget. Sure. So when I was living in Atlanta, one of the reasons I've never seen it is because I moved to Atlanta and I was there about two months and I was walking on a Wednesday night over to the video store, Videodrome, with my friend Josh, and we rented um, Driller Killer. 
and we went to the gas station, got a pack of beer, and then on the way back to his apartment, we were mugged at gunpoint. Jesus. And never got to watch Driller Killer that night. And so I always like weirdly associated it with this weird way of like, well, maybe I wasn't meant to see Driller Killer. This was God's way of saying, no, sir. Just don't watch it. I was supposed to watch it. That was like 13 fucking years ago and ended up not. Um, I literally just remember that right now we're sitting here. I said, I can't. I can't. I forgot that. But that was the movie we had in our hands. They didn't take the movie. We got to return it. They just took the beer and our money and our phones and our keys. Um, I can't believe they they took the beer. Well, I can't. I guess. <laughs> Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. You know. Um, <laughs> take the PBR. <laughs> How about for you? Oh, King of New York, uh, Miss Forty Five, and probably China Girl. Oh yeah, nice. Yeah, top three. Like they're just the ones that I think are just the straight up bullets that he made that, that are unassailable. I think you could, you could make the argument that you could split and do two top threes. If you've seen the majority of his movies and do like the artier, more abstract, uh, top three would be like the blackout new Rose hotel, and Tom- I really like Tommaso. Like, I think that's it's a. I'm gonna probably watch that a first. Gorgeous film. I think next. Um, but with an incredibly soulful Defoe performance, and like, honestly, it's 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 a tough sit because, um, kind of like what we were talking about with with, uh, you know, the difference between like Von Trier and Ferrara is this is very much. It's not. It's not a man critiquing his own art. It's a man critiquing himself. And like he's like savage to his own uh, insecurities as like an, an aging man, like with a younger woman and like isn't afraid to basically lay out like what a vulnerable and petty like person that he can be. And I, I think that's, I don't know. That takes a lot of guts to just kind of be like, I'm going to make this movie about how I'm a shithead. You know, it's like John Lennon's song. I'm a, just a jealous guy. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of like really putting it out there. Yeah. I prefer the Brian Ferry version though. I do too. <laughs> I have the CD. I love that. I love the fucking song. It's so good. Oh, God. I saw him sing it twice in concert. I've still never seen him. <sighs> now he's 9 billion years old. So I don't think I'm going to, but dude, that guy's got hips, man. Like he can still fucking move. <laughs> he can still sway. He really can. Very strange stage presence though, because he's, he's a big old lurch of a cool motherfucker. Uh, I had a, this guy I knew in Atlanta, uh, this owned really awesome, um, I think it's called Decatur CD. It's really cool. Like, record store, but it's mostly CDs. So mm. he really, he curated the shit out of it. Music guy, full ponytail, gray hair, like a hippie, but he used to be in the music business as they, as they all were. Right. But we were talking, I bought a bunch of used Brian Ferry records that they had there, like the bride wore black. And I, and I like, which is a great, all fucking, the good shit. Yeah. It's awesome. So I bring it up and boys and girls, I think I got too. And I was like, he goes, Oh, you like Brian Ferry? I was like, yeah, dude. He's like, yeah. He goes, I know Brian. Like shit, he's like, yeah. Whenever he would come to town, like I was working, like I think it was uh, journalism, so I would always like see him and have dinner. And he said that Brian Ferry is a consummate British gentleman. Like a woman would walk to their table, he'd get up, pull out their chair, just like old school, like you chivalry, could see it. Yeah, yeah, chivalrous kind of thing. Apologies for the Brian Ferry tangent, but always a good opportunity to talk about the man. Never apologize for your Brian Ferry love. <laughs> All right.
So that brings us to face melter status. No, uh, we should talk about remake or no remake. Oh, shit, you're right. So I we'll, forget we'll, our own questions half yeah, the time. Yeah. What are our categories? I don't know. <laughs> um, remake. Would you, could you, should you? Go. Absolutely. Um, I think if we're talking about King of New York, um, what I think is really interesting is, you know, with Bad Lieutenant, you had this already had this remake that Werner Herzog did, uh, Portocol, New Orleans, where it's... A, we were talking before you know, before the uh, recording of another kind of wild auteur who goes to the beat of his own drum, kind of coming in and playing in Ferrara's sandbox. I love to see something similar done with King of New York, where it's like a different director and it's like almost like a loose sequel, like, or a thematic sequel, different character, but like also like maybe like a modern day King of New York thing. Um, doesn't have to be like narratively connected to the original. Who would you want to see play the next bad lieutenant? Bad lieutenant or the next Frank? Bad lieutenant. Oh, that's we were talking about because we were talking about a loose, almost like bad lieutenant franchise off mic. About wouldn't it be cool if every like three or four years you got a new bad lieutenant movie with like a. A, a wild auteur who jumped in and like another actor like a Keitel or a cage who just fully embraced, like, like you just dialing it up to 12 for a hundred minutes or whatever. Oh man, that is a tough question. I have mine. You go, you start, man. I'd love to see Ray Fiennes do a bad Lieutenant oh. movie. And like, what if you did like English bad Lieutenant with like, um, who would be like a great weird English filmmaker who could just dude get like Matthew Vaughn to like come in. Like he do like, a good, I just don't like Matthew Vaughn movies. <laughs> um, Oh man. Who's the one guy who makes like, mm. this is England. Oh, I forget. Or like Mike Hodges. If he, he's still alive, right? That'd be kind of cool. Mike Hodges, Mike Lee. <laughs> <laughs> What's Mike Lee's bad Lieutenant. Look like <laughs> Ken Loach. Ken, yeah. <laughs> Ken Loach's bad lieutenant. Um, or, yeah, who's the guy who made the Shane Meadows. Okay. That'd be interesting if you did something like that. Or even, like, we were talking about Stephen Knight off mic. Like, what if he, he's obviously got some shit going on in his brain because he invented Serenity. So, like, or, um, I don't know. Is he British? What's, what's the guy who made, um, I know, I, Alex Garland. Oh, like he's British, right? Oh, wow. Wouldn't an Alex Garland bad lieutenant with Ray Fiennes or just Danny Boyle? I mean, like, because like, because yeah. Garland is, you know, more sci fi. I don't think he, I mean, we're talking obviously. But what, what if it's British sci fi bad lieutenant with Ray Fiennes? Oh, man. I, I sitting here. I think Billy Bob Thornton. Oh, shit. So, but like bad Santa Billy Bob Thornton. Just like vomiting the whole time. But like one really, false move, Billy Bar. Oh, Thornton. I love him so much in that. Oh my, I love the movie Ooh, so much. What would a Carl Franklin like bad lieutenant look like? That would be fucking That cool. would be really neat. Um, I'm sure we're to just think. totally on a, we're just spinning off the planet at this point. I, I would like to watch all these things though. I hope, um, I hope they listen. And decide yeah, Carl Franklin does bad lieutenant. Oh, do you know who would have been great if you were still alive? Bill Paxton. Yeah. Like kind of nicer, but he was like, he could do like a weird. Like the Southern 
thing. Um, Powers Booth could have done it. Powers Booth could have done it. Nolte. <laughs> Nolte would be Nolte would be fun. I'm trying to think of like who would be fun younger actors. Honestly, another bad lieutenant that would be a lot of fun might be more serious than what we're kind of fucking with. But like, what about like Michael Fassbender doing like a bad lieutenant, mm. like his version of just riffing in the, in this weird space? Like, do Fassbender with someone like like a Carl Franklin or like a like somebody who's just totally off the f- who would be like off the reservation completely um, that every time they pop up, they're like, you're like, Oh great. Like the safties are kind of like the easy answer here. What if, if he weren't me too, like Richard Stanley came out of retirement. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Well, here's, here's another matching though. Gosling and Reffin. Cause I know that they're doing the maniac cop or no Reffin was in the maniac cop thing for a bit. But, yeah, but like well, with them uh, as a Hyams, pair, John Hyams is the one directing the Maniac Cop series yeah. for him. Um, but like them as a unit, yeah, that would be a lot fun. of fun. And or put, even pushing him to his grossest. Do, like, do John Hyams doing uh, a bad lieutenant with Van Damme? Oh fuck! <laughs> <laughs> oh, just <laughs> him just. Totally doing his weird, sad clown thing later. Anyway, what would a King of New York remake look like to, to bring it back? Would we do this as like, would it be a film? Would it be a Netflix series? I feel like King of New York would almost, because of its epic nature, maybe lend itself to being a better Netflix limited series. I think like a four episode or, or the kind of vibe I'm thinking of, like, or like HBO Max, like or true, something. like True Detective, kind of, which is eight, but still, it's like that sense where who's your Frank White? Oh man, I'm trying to think of just people that I'm loving. You know who I would do? Sure, Christopher Abbott from Possessor. Oh, I want him in everything. I don't know. I like him. Um, Not old enough. You have to believe that he's been in prison for a significant portion of his life, has gotten out, but was on the street long enough to have garnered such a reputation. Like Frank White's in his 40s? Late 40s. Yeah. I mean, if there's no age limit, we're going old. I'd go with fucking Terrence Stamp, do a little limey action. <laughs> God. He looks like a zombie. Yeah. Right now. He actually doesn't look too bad in uh, Soho. Um, oh, he's in Last Night in Soho. Mm-hmm. I still haven't seen that one. He's awesome. Ooh, I had one off the top of my head of who would be a good Frank White, and I just lost it. Um, I'm trying to think of someone who's like ethereal, you know, like because I think what one of the things that Frank White has is kind of floating nature. Yeah, that you he, know, Walken brings that entire like unknowable uh, element to the character, to where like when he's even si- like they even kind of hit on that early on when he's sitting in the back of that limo just staring out the yes. window oh. and the girls are even watching him. Like what's he thinking? What is he f- like? What's going through his mind? Um, trying to think of who, Oh, I have mine. I know who I would want for Frank white, Colin Farrell. Oh yeah. You could do some real weird shit with him. You know, he'd be down too. Yeah. And also bring like, God, who else could be in it? Too like Lakeith Stanfield. Oh man, now we're really, we're really <laughs> cooking with gas now. 
Yeah, get Lakeith in there as in like a Jimmy Jump type scenario. Let's get Brian Tyree Henry. Let's get everyone from Atlanta except for... Yeah, Donald Glover. Yeah, just everyone but... Yeah. I mean, Donald Glover can join too if he wants to. I don't care. He'd probably get it made. All right. So, last last question. question. Fuck you, Martin. (laughs) Face melter. Yes, no, maybe so. Was that quoting Miami Vice? Yeah. Yes, no, maybe so. Yes, no, maybe so. I think it the, the great movies. John Ortiz. He would he would fit well. Oh my In a God. King of New York remake. One of my favorite John Ortiz roles though is actually Silver Linings Playbook. As is his. Oh, he's amazing. Neurotic. He's just like I listen to Metallica. <laughs> yeah, his like really weird neurotic friend who's like what's can't stand up to his wife. <laughs> to to uh, what's her name? Um, Julia. From uh, Save the Last Dance. Oh, Julia Stiles. Julia Stiles, yeah. Um, Always had a huge crush on her. Never did it for me. Um, (laughs) Talking about um, face melter, yay or nay? Um, Definitely nay. Uh, No? Yeah. But but for this film, I I don't think that it's... I I really like it. There's face melter scenes, like the shootout. Uh, is insane. Yeah, the that multiple shootouts, shootout. That the, one the and the car chase them. and the car chase too yeah. are just are are crazy. But as a whole, like it definitely has this more kind of like you know kind of fluid nature. Again, when I think of like a face melter, like hard target, like I I just don't sure in terms of like if I were to show it to someone, I might show it to a friend like you if you hadn't seen it, and they'd be like, "Whoa, this is thank you for showing this to me." But I wouldn't be like. Oh my fucking god! Like that just like blew me away in terms of like insanity. Now that might be the situation with Bad Lieutenant. I think is face melter because like it's depressing, but it's like oh I can't believe what it's I depraved. just saw. It's yeah. just like it really. There's no there's no basement to how like how low that movie. He's goes. just shooting heroin, and she's shooting it into for his real arm at one point. And she's yeah. shooting it for real. It looks like yeah. she, was a, she was a yeah yeah. She she had some issues as well. Um, see, I go with this is a face melter. Like this one, like other movies that I've quoted on here before, like Videodrome or Blowout, like I, the first time I saw it, it completely like just rewired part of my brain rolling. Oh shit, this is wild. And because I think partially because it, it's not anything you haven't seen before because even, even, you know, we referenced Scarface earlier and even like, you know, the gangster pictures of the thirties and forties, this is still very much operating in that, in a similar mode. Like this is a gangster movie. You know, it's a guy, he comes in, he shakes everything up. He kills all the powerful people around him to, to, to consolidate power. He rises to the top and he falls at the end. Like it's white heat, like going all the way back to stuff like white heat, you know? But for me, it's just watching Ferrara at like, the, the peak of his powers uh, making this movie just can't beat it, man. And it totally like, even when I turned it on today before, before coming over here, like, you know, two seconds in that, that opening shot when you're in jail and it glides across the bars and stops and the, the door opens and Frank white just gets out, walks up and, and more or less almost looks into the camera and then later does look into the camera in a couple during, times in the shower. <laughs> yep. Um, <clears throat> like I was just like, Oh, that's right. That's what this movie's doing. This, 
And I just love it. Like it just totally speaks to me. And, and every time I, I lose my mind over it. So yeah, I, I vote yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Martin pleasure as always. Indeed, sir. This wraps up King of New York spine number 18 of the secret handshake podcast. Next time we have, well, you know what? I don't even think we know what we have. We do know what we have. Ooh, and it's a good one. It's a lot of action coming at your ass. So we'll see you next time. See you then.